0: I am Shen Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. The September 2017 issue of Heart Rhythm has a featured article entitled Permanent His Bundle Pacing for Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, Initial Feasibility Study in Lue of Left Ventricular Lead by Archie Jola et al. from UCLA. This article is also the CME article. Dr. Dan Morin has interviewed Dr. Rod Tung, the corresponding author of the article. The interview can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The purpose of this exciting study was to assess the feasibility of incorporating a his bundle lead for cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, or CRT, in lieu of a coronary sinus lead, The authors attempted permanent his bundle pacing in 21 patients with indications of CRT, and were successful in 16 of them. In those patients, the QRS duration reduced from an average of 180 milliseconds to an average of 129 milliseconds during follow-up the new york heart association class improved from three to two and the left ventricular ejection fraction improved from 27 to 41. this provocative study suggests that in a majority of patients permanent his bundle pacing may improve the outcomes in patients with indication for CRT. Dr. Vijay Yaraman wrote an editorial for this study. He pointed out that his bundle pacing may be an excellent alternative to patients who failed transvenous LV lead placement. His bundle pacing may also be useful in CRT non-responders whether or not his bundle pacing can replace CRT in treating heart failure remains unclear. The September issue is also a focus issue for atrial fibrillation. The first 14 articles, including both original research papers and editorials are focused on atrial fibrillation. The first article in this focus issue is entitled propagation of meandering rotors, surrounded by areas of high dominant frequency in persistent atrial fibrillation. The paper was co-authored by Salinet et al. from Sao Paulo, Brazil. The authors used a non-contact array caster in the left atrium to sample from 2048 electrograms during persistent AF. During these high density maps, uh, the the authors were able to determine the location of phase singularities. They found that the phase singularities and dominant frequency sites were neighbors in over 60% of the cases. And that the two regions overlaps in 36.8% of the time windows. The authors conclude the multiple phase singularity points drifting over the LA were identified with their clusters correlating spatially with the dominant frequency regions. If phase singularities are the sources of AF, then these phase singularities should be associated with the highest rate of activation. In other words, phase singularity and dominant frequency sites should match. This paper seems to provide strong support to that theory. The next paper is entitled long-term outcomes on minimally invasive surgical ablation for atrial fibrillation, a single center experience. The paper was co-authored by Sinai et al from Virginia Commonwealth University, Richmond, Virginia. Minimally invasive surgical AF ablation, or MISA delivers radiofrequency energy via a thoracoscopic approach to perform pulmonary vein isolation and left atrial ganglionic plexi ablation. Data on long term outcomes of MISA are lacking. Here the authors report five year follow up data from a prospective cohort of patients who underwent MISA at a single center. There were a total of 109 patients, including 60 with paroxysmal AF and 49 with persistent AF. The single procedure success rate was 38%. With the option to perform additional interventions such as catheter ablation, antiarrhythmic drugs, and cardioversion, 79.6% patients remained AF-free after five years the authors reported that 5% of the patient had stroke, including some patients without AF recurrence. This important manuscript suggests that MISA is an effective procedure in treating patients with AF. However, the authors did not directly compare the MISA procedure with the castor ablation. Therefore, it remains unclear which patients may benefit more from MISA as compared to catheter ablation. Uh, The paper has an additional important finding is that there is a continued risk of stroke, even after successful ablation. The next paper is entitled, Effect of Air Removal with Extracorporeal Balloon Inflation on Incidence of Asymptomatic Cerebral Embolism during balloon ablation of atrial fibrillation. The paper was co-authored by Tokuda et al. from GKE University School of Medicine, Tokyo, Japan. Symptomatic cerebral embolism occurred during cryoablation of AF in about 0 to 0.5% of patients. However, Procedural asymptomatic cerebral embolism was detected by cerebral MRI in 4 to 27% of patients after cryoablation of AF. These findings could be related to air bubbles on the balloon. Therefore, the authors designed a method to completely eliminate the air bubbles on the balloon before the procedure. The method includes balloon massaging with extracorporeal balloon inflation in saline water. The authors then studied a group of patients using the cleaned balloons and another group using conventional approach, which did not use this special cleaning procedure. They found that the abnormal cerebral MRI in experimental group was 4.7%, while in a control group, was 23.3 percent. The authors recommend using this novel balloon massaging method before cryo balloon utilization. This study, while interesting, has many limitations. One is that the authors did not employ prospective randomized designs to assign patients into experimental versus control groups. The authors also not have baseline MRI in all patients for comparison. In spite of these limitations, the reduction of MRI abnormalities by balloon cleaning might be interesting to the clinicians who perform cryoablation. The next article is entitled, Additional Value of Left Atrial Appendage Geometry and Hemodynamics when considering anticoagulation strategy in patients with atrial fibrillation with low CHATS2 DS2 VASC scores. The paper was co authored by Lee et al. from Kyung Hee University, Seoul, Republic of Korea. The authors studied two groups of patients. All of them had CHATS2-DS2-VASC score of 0 to 1. The first group includes 66 patients with non-valvular AF and ischemic stroke. The second group was patients with non-valvular AF who do not have stroke for comparison. They found that the hemodynamics and geometry of the left atrial appendage are important factors that differentiate these two groups. Specifically, the presence of both decreased left atrial appendage flow velocity and increased left atrial appendage orifice size was associated with high odds ratio of stroke. A limitation of the study is that it is not a prospective randomized study and that it is difficult to determine the duration of AF Prior to stroke. The next paper is entitled Efficacy and Safety of Left Atrial Appendage Closure with Watchmen in Patients With or Without Contraindication to Oral Anticoagulation. One year follow-up outcome data of the Evolution trial spells EWOLUTION. The paper is co-authored by Boesma et al, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. The evolution is a registry to evaluate real-world clinical outcomes in patients with AF and high stroke risk treated with Watchman left atrial appendage closure technology. A total of 1,025 patients scheduled for a Watchman implant were prospectively and sequentially enrolled at 47 centers. The baseline CHADS2, DS2 VASC score was 4.5. The mean age was 73.4 years. The authors found that LAA closure with the Watchman device has a high implant and seeding success. The method of stroke risk reduction appears to be safe and effective with an ischemic stroke rate as low as 1.1%, even though 73% of patients had a contraindication tool and were not using oral anticoagulation. A limitation of this study is that there was no control arm. Being an observational study, the protocol for follow-up and additional therapies were not uniform. An editorial by Afzal and Emo Dowd noted that these results from European institutions were similar and incremental to that published by Reddy et al. in JAK 2017 based on U.S. patients. In the U.S., Watchman is not approved for patients who have a contraindication to anticoagulation. This FDA registry guideline causes patients who likely would benefit the most from non-pharmacological intervention to be deemed ineligible. In contrast, European guidelines allow left atrial appendage occlusion in, anticoagul- in anticoagulation in eligible patients by using short-term dual antiplatelet therapy in a post-procedure period. The editorial calls for further clinical trials of Watchman device that employ the strategy of dual antiplatelet therapy in warfarin in eligible patients. The next paper is entitled Second-Generation balloon Ablation in the Setting of Left Common Pulmonary Veins, Procedural Findings and Clinical Outcome. The paper was co-authored by Stroker et al., Brussels, Belgium. A left common pulmonary vein is the most frequently observed pulmonary vein variation. The authors discovered that 167 of 433 patient cohort had left common pulmonary vein. They used the second generation cryoablation for patients without and with the left common pulmonary vein and found that the survival free from atrial fibrillation was similar between these two groups. These results were the same as the manuscript published last month by Heger and his co-authors from Hamburg, Germany. These two papers suggest that the second generation cryoablation can be used effectively in patients with the left common pulmonary vein. The next article is entitled Verification of a Novel Atrial Fibrillation Cryoablation Dosing Algorithm Guided by Time to Pulmonary Vein Isolation results from the cryo-dosing study. The paper was co-authored by Ariana et al. from Sacramento, California. The purpose of this study was to de- develop and prospectively test a cryo-ablation of AF dosing protocol guided exclusively by time to pulmonary vein isolation in patients undergoing a first-time cryo-ablation of AF. The authors designed a protocol for standardized approach to cryo-dosing. A single cryo-ablation was applied to a given PV if the time to PV isolation measured less than 60 seconds. The duration of that application consisted of time to PV isolation plus 2 minutes. If time to PV isolation was between 60 and 90 seconds, then a second bonus two-minute cryo application was delivered to the same PV. Those cryo applications that did not achieve time to pulmonary vein isolation greater than 90 seconds were abandoned and the cryo balloon was repositioned in order to achieve a suitable time to PV isolation. Lastly, if time to PV isolation could simply not be measured, then a three minute follow, followed by a two minute cryo application was empirically delivered to the PV. The authors found that this cryo AF dosing algorithm, guided by time to PV isolation, helped individualize the ablation strategy and yield improved procedural endpoints and efficacy as compared to the conventional non-standardized approach the benefits include fewer atypical atrial flutters tachycardias during long-term follow-up as well as fewer late pv reconnections at redo procedures the investment of time to position the achieved mapping caster to enable the aforementioned tailored approach will actually save time the limitation is that the study did not use a randomized design. The next manuscript is entitled Risk of Atrial Esophageal Fistula Formation with Contact for Sensing Casters." The paper was co-authored by Black Meyer et al. from Duke University Medical Center, Durham, North Carolina. The authors searched the Manufacturer and User Facility Device Experience Database that uh, for adverse events uh, reported uh, involving FDA-approved ablation casters. Among 2,689 device reports, the authors identified 78 atrial esophageal or AE fistula cases 65 of which involved contact force sensing casters and 13 non-contact force sensing casters. The authors conclude that AE-FISTO formation accounted for a much higher proportion of reported adverse events with contact force sensing casters compared with non-contact force sensing casters. Improved understanding of the relationship between power forced delivery and esophageal damage is needed to minimize the risk of AE fistula formation. A major limitation of the study is that the database included only the voluntarily reported adverse events. Some adverse events might not have been reported. The true instance of AE fistula remains unknown. In addition, the contact force used by various operators is not standardized. As pointed out by Dr. Andrea Russell's editorial, the contact force caster could be a double-edged sword that improves outcomes but also risks increased AE fistula. Better data needed to guide the contact force ablation on posterior wall to maximize the benefits and reduce the reduced risk of AF ablation. The next paper is entitled Risk Model for Predicting Complications in Patients Undergoing AF Ablation by Padala et al. from Virginia Commonwealth University, Richmond, Virginia. The authors reviewed the National Inpatient Sample Database to identify over 100,000 patients who underwent AF ablation. Roughly half the patients were used for derivation cohort and the other half for the validation cohort. The results showed the following nine predictors of complications. Cerebrovascular accident, congestive heart failure, coagulopathy, renal failure, peripheral vascular disease, age greater than 50 years, female sex, chronic obstructive lung disease, and non-white. The authors concluded that a practical risk uh, score model can be used preoperatively to risk stratify patients undergoing AF ablation. The study is limited by the absence of detailed ablation strategies in database and the retrospective design. The late complications such as PV stenosis and AE fistula, were not assessed as the database did not capture follow-up data. The next paper is entitled Focal Atrial Tachycardias from the Parahitian Region, Strategies for Mapping and Castor Ablation by Yang et al., Fuai Hospital and the Peking Union University, Beijing, China. The authors studied 91 patients with atrial tachycardia or AT, from the parahisian region. Ablation was successful in 86, or 94.5%. ATs were successfully eliminated by ablation from the right atrial septum in 23, right middle septum in 19, and non coronary cusp in 44. The site of success is related to the mean timing of the A potential on the hispandocaster, which was the earliest with minus 27 milliseconds in the non coronary cusp as compared with a potential in a septum for ATs originating from the right atrial septum and the right middle septum the a to V ratio of less than 1.22 predicted safe and successful ablation the authors conclude that for parahisian ATs, activation sequence and timing of the A on the caster can provide clues for the origin of ATs. The next article is entitled Comprehensive Use of Cardiac Computed Tomography to Guide Left Ventricular Lead Placement in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy by Bear et al. from King's College, London, UK. The purpose of the study was to evaluate cardiac CT selection of the optimal epicardial vein for LV lead placement by targeting regions of late mechanical activation and avoiding myocardial scar. The author studied 18 patients with CRT upgrade Their approach is to use CT to determine regions of myocardial scar by the derivation of the stretch quantifier for endocardial engraved zones algorithm or squeeze algorithm, spells S Q U E E Z. They found that squeeze derived guidance uh, produced a positive acute hemodynamic response in 92% of target segments, and pacing in a CT squeeze target vein produced a greater clinical response rate versus non-target segments. The rate was 90% versus 60%. The authors conclude that pre-procedural CT squeeze derived target selection May be a valuable tool to predict the optical venous site for LV lead placement in patients undergoing CRT upgrade. The study is important in part because patients with, with existing non-conditioned devices were thought to be contraindicated for cardiac MR or CMR examination. A second benefit is that the CT might visualize the coronary veins better than the CMR. However, as as stated in an editorial from Dr. Kevin Bernou's group at Maastricht University Medical Center, CT algorithm has its own limitations. In addition, more recent data, including the one published in Harvardism last month by Strom et al., Showed that CMR is safe in patients with non MR conditioned devices. Therefore, whether or not CT is necessarily or uh, superior to the CMR in patients with CRT upgrade remains to be determined. The next article is entitled A Leadless Pacemaker in a Real World Setting. The micro Transcaster pacing system post approval registry, co authored by Robert Settle from Southampton, UK. The authors report the acute performance of the micro uh, transcaster pacemaker from a worldwide post approval registry. The device was successfully implanted in 792 of 795 registry patients or 99.6% by 149 implanters at 96 centers in 20 countries. Through 30-day post-implant, a total of 13 major complications occurred in 12 patients for a major complication rate of 1.51. Major complications included cardiac effusion slash perforation, device dislodgement, and sepsis. Early pacing capture thresholds were low and stable. The authors conclude that the performance of the Micra transcaster pacemaker in a real-world setting demonstrates a high rate of implant success and low rate of major complications. An editorial from Sunid Mittels group in New Jersey pointed out three unresolved issues related to the leader's pacemaker. These issues include, number one, periprocedural anticoagulation strategy, number two, the feasibility of extracting the device when it is infected or had a failed battery, and number three, the pacing-induced asynchrony. In comparison, the permanent His bundle pacing does not cause pacing-induced asynchrony and might be a strong competing technology in managing patients with atrial fibrillation and slow ventricular response. The next article is entitled Characterization of Healthcare Utilization in Patients Receiving Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Therapies and Analysis of the Managed Ventricular Pacing Trial by Rickard et al. of Cleveland Clinic the authors analyzed healthcare utilization using data from the managed ventricular pacing protocol, which uh, included approximately a thousand subjects in that trial. A major finding is that for ventricular tachyarrhythmia related healthcare utilizations or HCUs, shocks were associated with a 25-fold increase in HCUs compared to that treated by anti-tachycardia pacing only. An implication is that reducing ICD shocks by programming higher rate cutoffs. Use of anti pacing, pacing may help reduce HCUs. The next article is, is entitled, Face Contrast Magnetic Resonance Imaging Reveals Regional, Transmural, and Base-to-Apex Dispersion of Mechanical Dysfunction in Patients with Long QT Syndrome by Brado et al. from University of Freiburg, Freiburg, Germany. The authors studied nine pediatric patients with genotypes, long QT syndrome, and nine age and sex-matched healthy controls with face contrast MRI to analyze radial and longitudinal myocardial velocities during systole and diastole in the LV base mid and apex. The primary finding is that patients with long QT syndrome exhibit diastolic dysfunction with reduced diastolic velocities and a prolonged contraction duration. Long QT syndrome is therefore an electromechanical disorder with significant abnormalities of mechanical dysfunction because abnormal mechanical function is likely a major contributor to electrical remodeling, these abnormal contraction patterns may contribute to cardiac arrhythmogenesis in patients with Long QT syndrome. The next article is entitled "Compliant Endovascular Balloon Reduces the Lethality of Superior Vena Cava Tears During Transvenous Lead Extractions" by Azar Rafi et al. from University of Miami, Miami, Florida. SVC tear is a major complication uh, of lead extraction. The authors therefore assessed the early impact of the compliant endovascular balloon on the management of SVC tears and the survival outcomes. The authors searched the FDA database for adverse events related to lead extraction and contacted the extracting physicians for case details. Of the complications reported, 35 cases of surgically confirmed SVC tears were identified. Among them, 9 of 9 or 100% of cases with the endovascular balloon was discharged alive, while only 50% of the patients, or 13 of 26, when the device was not used differences between all other variables analyzed were statistically insignificant. The authors concluded that they observed a reduction in mortality in patients who suffered SVC tears while undergoing lead extraction when treatment included an endovascular balloon. An editorial from Dr. George Crossley, Vanderbilt University, Nashville, Tennessee, also thought the use of this device is potentially useful and that he personally prepared for the use of this device before every lead extraction however the present study has a lot of limitations a multi-center registry will be very helpful to determine if the device is truly clinically useful the next paper is entitled qrs t wave and the calcium in type 1 diabetic mouse model for spontaneous post-myocardial infarction ventricular tachycardia, a mechanism for the antiarrhythmic effects of statins by Jean et al from Tufts University School of Medicine, Boston, Massachusetts. The authors used diabetic Akita mice as the model to study post-MI ventricular tachycardia. They found that Pravastatin decreased the incidence of post MIPT and the calcium alternance in Akita mouse hearts, in part by reversing abnormalities of calcium handling. An editorial from Dr. Richard Verrier of Beth Israel Medical Center, Boston, Massachusetts, pointed out that the mouse models may not be a perfect model for human disease. However, the effects of statin on calcium handling could be a bonus to the statin therapy and may partially explain the survival benefit of statin therapy in patients with MI and diabetes. In addition to the above original research articles, the September issue also includes a Josephson and Willen's ECG lesson of a young man with frequent episodes of palpitation. There was an interesting image showing a leadless pacemaker surrounded by three valvular are uh, We also have four EP news covering heart rhythm case reports, clinical and basic science articles published in non-EP journals, and one specifically written for allied professionals. There were two letters to editor discussing a possible alternative diagnosis of an ECG tracing published in the journal. For the heart rhythm journal, I'm editor in chief, Dr. Penxian Chien.